Last session, we were looking at the Battle of Water, and that Battle of Water is going to play out in the future. Uh, it's going to play out because we're going to see a cloud of witnesses come upon the earth, the multitudinous bride, the multitudinous host. And at the same time, you've got Ezekiel 38 opening up where the Gogian Confederacy is described as a great cloud that's going to come all across Jerusalem. And so you've got the battle of these two clouds in Ezekiel chapter 38. And of course, the cloud of witnesses, the saints, is going to overcome. Um, so we're going to move now on to the second battle in the series of Elijah. Um, he launches on the scene demanding that, the, that, that Jezebel listens to the word of God because the, the heavens are going to be closed up. Of course, she refuses. And now we come to the second part of the sequence of events, which is, of course, the great battle of fire. And it's a wonderful story. And, and what we're going to see here, we're just going to be looking at this this phenomenal incident uh, in the history of Israel. What we're going to see here, so if we think about what we, thought, what we thought of in our last session about that Jezebel movement that's there in Rome today, and, and the whole world bows down to Queen Jezebel. They're, they're succumbed to her, to the tune she plays, and they all dance to her tune. And when we look at this, this event here in 1 Kings 18, God, Yahweh, is showing us, quite simply, the foolishness of that regime, the utter idiocy of worshipping the harlot. And he's painting a great picture and he's presenting to them here this image of what it is to be of truth and what it is to be of folly. And the point is now, young people, this, this really is a, a session for you. Because at the heart of this incident, at the heart of this great event, it's the children of Israel who have to make a choice. And they've been given a plague to make that choice on whether to choose man or whether to choose Christ. And we're under a very similar event. We're governed, the world is governed by that Jezebel system. There's a great plague, and in many cases, UK is suffering a bit of a drought at the moment. But in many cases, there's plagues being poured upon that Roman system. And in the meantime, there's a remnant. And there's a group of people now who need to make a choice. Who's it going to be, friends? Is it going to be Baal that evolved slowly over the, over the millennia into Jezebel? Or is it going to be the true consistent God? The God of fire, the God of water, the God of life. It's a very simple choice, but mentally it be, can be a challenging one. And if you see then, um, if we move then to 1 Kings 17 and verse uh, 24, uh, 1 Kings 18, sorry, in verse 17, Elijah now, after a great absence, comes upon the scene. This is his second advent, and he comes before the king of Israel, Ahab, and he's there now speaking to Ahab. Um, but before we talk about this incident here, he, he spent three and a half years of me in, in fleeing and he was told to go to Brook Kerith. He was figuratively, uh, he was in the wilderness and then he goes then to Zidon to speak to the widow. The last words the widow says is in 1 Kings 17 and verse 24. Read these words carefully. So she looks at Elijah after all he'd done for her. She'd been converted into the hope of Israel and in verse 24, she says, in thy mouth is truth. 
as Elijah spoke, he spoke truth. And if you were to look at that word truth, it's the Hebrew idea for doctrine. And Deuteronomy 32 launches us in to the word of God, where he says, my word is doctrine, my word is truth, and my doctrine falls like rain. In other words, the truth that Elijah was speaking to her was like pure crystal water. It was like the fountain of life that unleashed itself out of his mouth, that quenched the spiritual soul of this poor widow. Now, the first words that Ahab said to Elijah were these words. Look at verse 17 of 1 Kings 18. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubles Israel? And if we were to look at that word trouble there in verse 17, it means to stir up like muddy water. And so the widow of Zarephath said, out of your mouth is crystal clear, pure water, Elijah. You're, you're quenching my thirst. You're spiritualizing my soul. But when he greets the king of Israel, Ahab says to him, you're stirring up this murky water. You're stirring it up like a big mud bath, he says to Elijah. In other words, Ahab was blaming Elijah for this drought. That the reason that there was no pure water, the reason why the rains weren't cascading themselves on the pollutioners of Carmel was based on the fact that Elijah was stirring up this muddy water. So we're going to ask the question, who is speaking true water? Is it going to be Yahweh's words or is it going to be Baal's words? And so Elijah now, he'd clearly won the battle of water, hadn't he? He'd overcome that doctrine of Baal, where Baal was the god of the waters. Now the battle of water had concluded. Elijah now commences the battle of fire. And out from water comes fire. And the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are baptized in fire and in water. And the two elements that speak so profoundly of the manifestation of God are water and fire. And how appropriate that it was Elijah who waged this war on Baal. He was the one who announced that a, con a contest of fire be brought on the great mount of Carmel. And so what we have here, we have two elements. OK, so so water, of course, in our last session speaks of the word of God that's manifested in the saints as the saints are going to be this great cloud of witnesses that's going to replenish this world with God's word. But fire speaks of divine power and judgment of God. This is solely God's power, fire. And he is the one now who's going to answer Baal face to face. Who's going to win? The eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent God with neither beginning nor end. The God of creation, the God who brought Israel out of the waters of the Red Sea and led them through the wilderness of fire. Or is it going to be this motionless piece of wood or piece of stone, veil? And this is the foolishness in which God is trying to give us of worshipping something else, adhering ourselves to something else.
that isn't the true and living God. And we're going to see all that foolishness play out in this well-memorable story as Elijah is on Mount Carmel. And if we think about Hebrews 12, verse 29, God is a consuming fire. He's all-encompassing. It's a consuming fire. Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of his soon return, um, he announces, doesn't he, that when you see the Son of Man on a cloud, the cloud of witnesses, he also says that you'll see lightning come from the east to the west. So the greater cloud of witnesses that Jesus spoke of is going to come with the fire of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's really interesting is that Baal was the god of lightning. You'll notice he's got a lightning bolt in his hand, right? Because he was the god of lightning and he was standing upon the waters. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return on a cloud as a lightning bolt. And so we're going to ask the question here, which is the God we want to worship? Is it the Yahweh who sends his son or is it going to be Baal and Jezebel? The answer is obvious, isn't it? But there's a choice. There is a very profound choice because it may seem obvious, but the bite of Jezebel, like the serpent, is poisonous and it erodes the spiritual mind. And Jezebel, if she has a clasp upon your soul, that choice is going to be harder and harder to make. So the obvious place to, to, to have this event is in verse 19, Mount Carmel. Well, why would they choose Mount Carmel as the venue to hold this great wrestling match, this contest between Yahweh and Baal? Well, we only have to look at the prophecy of Jeremiah in chapter 2 and verse 7, that Carmel is known as a plentiful country. In fact, um, me and my older brother, we, we actually visited Carmel a few years ago, two or three years ago, and it's lush. It's like going to Wales. It's gorgeous out there, right? It's lush. It's green. It overlooks the Jezreel Valley. It's plentiful. There's abundance of foliage and, and plants and trees. It's a beauty to see. And now God has chosen to have, Elijah here has chosen to have the contest at Carmel. It means the mountain of, or the garden, sorry, of fruitfulness. And yet, we're in a three and a half year drought. A three and a half year drought, which would have scorched the surface of Carmel. So it was no longer plentiful, but it was a barren wilderness. And yet, friends, brothers and sisters, Baal was also known as the God of fertility. So not only was he known as the God of water, which he had lost, not only was he going to be the God of fire, which he's going to lose, but he's also the God of fertility in which the events of Carmel shows that he's lost that battle as well. Baal is literally going to fail on all fronts and the contest hasn't even been commenced. The show hasn't even started, and yet Baal has already failed. As they go to Carmel, that was once beautiful and green, now is brown and deserted. The mount and the garden of fruitfulness. And if you look at verse 41, the rain is going to come down, a picture of the saints in the kingdom, and it's going to pour upon Mount Carmel that it might bring forth fruit. And what a lovely image of the future work of the saints that in this spiritually barren world, 
that the world once again can bring forth divine fruit. And so look in verse 21. Verse 21 says that all Israel gather together on Mount Carmel. So when we think about all Israel, maybe it wasn't all Israel. Maybe that's just a symbolic idea of an important part of Israel. But it would have been a multitude of people coming to see the events of Carmel as God unveils fire upon that mount and how it will be at the end of times where all the nations shall gather together and they shall see the son of man on a, on a cloud as the right hand of God, holding the fire of God, ready to unleash that so important judgment on man's ideology that can only bring death and confusion and anxiety. How we long for this Carmel to be life driven again. And so we're seeing a reversal of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was made into a wilderness. And now we're going to see Carmel opened up again as it is going to be reverted in the kingdom age. Well, if you look at verse 21, and Elijah came unto all the people and said, how long do you halt between two opinions? Now, now the word halt there, you've probably got a different translation to me. So if you've got an ESV, you, you might have the word, how long are you going to be lame between two opinions? The idea is to be paralyzed. You know, Israel are like stuck, they're like a rabbit stuck in the headlights, aren't they? They're, they're just looking at this event and they're not moving, they're just stuck. And Elijah, this man with a, with a hairy chest and a leather girdle, comes behalf, on behalf of Israel and says, how long are you going to decide? You're paralyzed. Make a decision, he says. Now, it's interesting that he uses this idea of being a lame or a cripple. Now, if we could think of one famous person in the Bible who was a lame man, who could that man be? Which man in the times of Israel was lame? Well, my mind goes to the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. Okay, Mephibosheth was was lame, but he wasn't born lame, was he? An incident happened that made Mephibosheth a cripple, okay? And the same word here, so if you were to look at 2 Samuel 4, verse 4, the word lame is used, and that's the same word there in verse 21 of 1 Kings 18, the idea of halting. So, so John, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, was also halting. He was, he was like this, crippled, paralyzed. He couldn't move, okay? Now, how did... Um, Mephibosheth become lame because at his birth he was he was named something else wasn't he he wasn't always called called Mephibosheth it was through his crippling that he was called that name but he was born another name and you only have to go to 1 Chronicles 8 and verse 34 where we're given the actual name of Mephibosheth at his birth and the name given to him was the name Mary Baal. And you'll never have a guess what that name means. It means the opponent of Baal. Mephibosheth was born and his name was given the opponent of Baal. And because he became crippled, his name was changed to Mephibosheth, which means son of shame. 
So we've got to ask the question here, what is the incident that changed the name from the opponent of Baal to the son of shame? Well, it's a famous incident. It's in 2 Samuel 4 and verse 4. That the keeper of this particular man, Mary Baal, happened to be his nurse and his guardian. And what happened was through a great panic that happened in Israel at that time, this this nurse, this keeper, this guardian dropped this poor child on the floor. And he then became a cripple. And his name then was changed to the son of shame. And in the panic of this incident, because what was going on, the kingdom was about to be taken by an enemy and she dropped him. He then changed to this crippled man. And what happened then was that he was lame for the rest of his life. Now, if we think about this in the times of Israel, who was destined or who was or who should rather have been the opponent of Baal? Well, of course, it should have been Israel, shouldn't it? They were born to know as they came into Israel, as they came to the promised land, they were told not to fall down to false idols. And they were named at that point, Mary Baal, the opponent of Baal. So who dropped Israel? Who panicked and through negligence dropped the son of God? Well, I'm suggesting it was the guardian of Israel, which was Ahab. And in Ahab's negligence, he had dropped the son of God, Israel, the daughter of God, and they had become crippled. And now at this point, Elijah gives this parable, a parable of the story of Mephibosheth and says to them, you're just like him. You've been crippled. The keeper of Israel has dropped you. You can't be crippled anymore. You've got to go back to becoming the opponent of Baal. Don't be the son of shame. Now, if we think about it even further, who was Jonathan? Well, he was the son of Saul, of course he was, wasn't he? Uh, And Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. Uh, And you could say that altogether they were the son of Benjamin. Mephibosheth was from the tribe of Benjamin. But how did Benjamin's life start? He started by being called Benoni, which means the son of sorrows. But then his name was changed to the son of my right hand. And not only is Elijah reminding them of Methabosheth, that they were the opponent of Baal, that they've now become the son of sorrows, but they're reminding them of a greater story, the son of Benjamin, who was born the son of sorrows, but became the son of my right hand. And in this wonderful parable, in this wonderful sermon, in just using one word, he's explaining them that they don't have to be the son of sorrow. They don't have to be the son of shame. They can be the opponent of Baal once again. And in doing so, they'll be the son of God's right hand. What a wonderful exhortation Elijah here gives on the heights of Carmel as they all gather together to see who would win this war. And he unleashes there this great story of the story of Benjamin. And what happened, of course, to to Mephibosheth? Well, it tells us in 2 Samuel 9, verse 6 to 7, that because 
Mephibosheth understood who the true king was because he acknowledged kindness and because he loved King David, he was allowed to have a meal at the king's table. And that was what that that was what was on offer for Israel, that they could have fellowship with God once again if they took away their past and embraced the future. But of course, they didn't do it. And so the question then lies with us. Do we want to be that crippled person making a decision or do we want to eat at the king's table? Do we want to be the son of right hand, of God's right hand? Well, in verse 21, he goes on and he says, not only are you, are you halting between two opinions, he says, but you're lame as well. And then he says, okay, at the end of verse 21, you have a decision to make between these two opinions. Now, the word opinion there means to effectively be undecided, okay? And it's a fascinating word because if we look at the cognate word and we look at the idea, the Hebrew idea of that word opinion, it gives the idea of, um, of a little bird jumping between two branches. So, so here we've got Mephibosheth. He's making a decision. He's halting, okay? He can either go right or left because he's crippled. And Elijah now is telling the same story to Israel that they are like this. And then he says, you're just like this bird, a bird that's jumping between two branches. Make a decision, he says. You know, stop halting between two opinions. Now, I don't know about you. I've spent, recently, I've spent a bit of time looking at birds. Uh, and if you watch them, they're fascinating because it's like they don't have a brain, right? <laughs> they just jump on one branch to the other, and then they go to the other, and then they go to the other, and there doesn't seem any rhyme, reason, or logic to it. They, that's just the way they're built. And so Elijah then uses this analogy and says, you're just like a bird, crippled, halting between two opinion, opinions, jumping from one branch to the next branch. He says, look, we've, I'm fed up. If you're going to make a decision, make a decision now, not tomorrow. This is the moment you have to have to decide. Don't be like this silly little bird jumping between the two branches. And we only have to go to the, the epistle of James. What does James say? He says a double minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Confused. Jumping between one decision to the next. And the point is that the word of God is binary. There's only two choices, isn't there? And in fact, God lays that down from the very beginning, doesn't he? So the opening section of Genesis, God says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse three, God created the light and he divided the light from the darkness. And we've got a choice between light and dark. You know, we can't flitter between the two. It's either one or the other. And Israel here are flittering between two decisions, between light and darkness. And, and if you think about it, the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to make that decision. He is desperate for that decision to be made. And in the life of Elijah here, there's going to be a miracle of a sacrifice that's going to be offered. Divine fire from heaven is going to consume a sacrifice 
for them to make a decision. And if you think about the Lord Jesus Christ, that sacrifice has been made for us. A wonderful sacrifice where a man allowed himself through the mind of God, through the manifestation of God, allowed himself to sacrifice on behalf of us. That he was that representative, that he came and showed us what making a true decision was. And so in two situations, you've got two great sacrifices being offered and a decision to be, ma to be made in between them. And in fact, well, you know, Elijah, <laughs> he wears his heart on his sleeve. He makes, um, he makes a, a, a bold statement in verse 21. And he says to them, look, where do you stand? Where is this decision? And notice the phrase, the people answered him, not a word. Not one word was said. As they there all gathered at this great contest, the prophets of Baal on the side of the darkness, the prophet of God and the side of the light, and in between, jumping between the two, are a group of people who are answering not a word. No word was said. No choice was made. You know, Hebrews 10 and verse 23 says these words. Let us hold fast to our faith without wavering. Elijah says, don't waver. Make a decision. Not tomorrow, today. There's no room on the throne of your hearts for two gods. And yet they answer not a word. You know, the point is, I think here, when we think about it in relation to our lives, young people, a decision needs to be made. There's going to be a time that comes soon where the fire of God will be unleashed and the reins of the heavens shall be opened. The rain and the fire is coming, friends, young people. And we're on Mount Carmel trying to decide which side of the fence we want to stand. And the point is, there's no fence. Time is going to decide. And to delay will only make that decision harder. You know, indecision in itself actually is a choice, isn't it? If we choose not to decide, then we decide not to. Okay, so let me give you an, a, an example of this. So if I, um, if I choose to buy a ticket to go to Paris tomorrow, well, to be honest with you, there's no planes flying. So it's a poor example, but you, you, you get the drift, right? So if I choose to buy a ticket to go to Paris tomorrow. And if I decide, if I can't decide whether to go or not, that plane will take off, okay? The decision will be made. To decide not to decide is actually to decide to decide, okay? Because to delay is actually making a decision. Decisions are made whether we make them or not. Time decides if you will not and time always decides against us. There is no fence. It is one or the other. 
make a decision and God will respond. He will respond to you if you decide. Um, in fact, if you look through this, guess what the key word is? The key word is to answer. In verse 21, the people answered not a word. Verse 24, the God that answereth by fire and the people answered and said. Verse 26, O Baal, answer us. And no one answered. Verse 29, nor any to answer. Verse 37, answer me, O Yahweh, answer me that this people may know. All through 1 Kings 18, the key word is peppered into it to respond, to make that decision. And it's all about being on the side of God. The psalmist says, hear me, O God, and he heard me. If you speak to God, he will hear you. And in doing so, that decision will be made a lot easier. If we could think here, so if you look in, um, in verse 22, one of the biggest things I think um, that stops us making the right decision could potentially be peer pressure. You know, peer pressure to humanism today and postmodernism is rife. You know, riots on the streets based upon the teachings of, of that, that, that Roman system. And sometimes it can be difficult, can't it, to, to make the decision because we're, we're brought into this philosophy of being outnumbered. Well, if you look at Elijah here, there's 450 prophets of Baal against just him. So Elijah was heavily outnumbered. You think the, the amount of peer pressures, pressure that was bearing upon his shoulders but the decision to him was easy. Now, maybe Elijah isn't the best example to use in this situation because he was a fervent man, wasn't he? He was extremely passionate. He was vehement and he was a fiery man. So he wouldn't be succumbed to peer pressure. So maybe we could use another example. If you could think of one character in the Bible who really struggled with fear of being outnumbered, I would suggest that that person could be Gideon. Now, Gideon said, who am I? I'm nothing. I'm the least in my father's house. Whereas Elijah was a man who says, I'm the only one left. And you can see there the differences of personality between Elijah and Gideon. But if we looked and assessed the account of Gideon, we'll find that the echoes that go to a Gideon are, are extraordinary. So the idea of there's a huge influence of Baal in the, in the story of Gideon. People are hiding in caves. There's altars being built. There's divine fire coming down. There's unnamed prophets who come before them. There's a group of people who stood between two opinions. There's flour being offered and see there's a nation who didn't act. And there's a time of drought. And so even in the times of Gideon, the same thing was happening. Now, how many people did Gideon have when he fought the armies of Midian? Well, it tells us, of course, he had 300 men, 300 men on Gideon's side, on the side of God. How many men were on the opposition? Well, I've got here, Judges 8 verse 10, that there were 135,000 Midianites. So you've got a ratio of 135,000 against 300, right? 
It's interesting that they're both divisibles of each other. So if we were to get and boil down the basic ratio of 300 against 135,000, we would have to um, come to the conclusion that we would have to do 135,000 divided by 300. Now let's remind ourselves that Elijah was outnumbered 450 to one, and Gideon was outnumbered 300 to 135,000. What's the ratio in the times of Gideon? Well, 135,000 divided by 300 gives us the grand total of 450. It's the same ratio. Both cases saw an outnumbering of 450 to one. And yet we have one man, Gideon, who's an introvert, who's timid, who's contrite, who's unassuming. And then we've got another man like Elijah, who's fiery and ardent. And there are gonna be many of us listening to this session this afternoon, who are going to be either like Gideon or either like Elijah. We've got different personalities. We've got different qualities to offer. We've got different types of work that we do in our ecclesia. But yet God has said that even in these both circumstances, they were never fooled and they were never pressured into doing what was wrong. They kept their faith. Despite the opposition, they kept to it. And so if that decision is hard, which I know full well it is, and your parents know full well it is, and your brothers and sisters know full well it is, always remember that remnant, that group of witnesses that we saw in our first session, that small community of people that despite that Roman opposition kept true to their beliefs because there's a greater thing coming. There's something greater than this life that's going to appear on the world stage and we want to be part of that, as Gideon did, and certainly as Elijah did. And I love the two contrasts between Elijah saying, I'm the only one left. There's no one else but me. And Gideon saying, choose somebody else. I'm the least in my father's house. And maybe those characteristics fit with you. But always remember that they overcame. Well, so if we look at verse 26, um, Elijah then allows them to go first. He's very, he's very well-mannered is Elijah, right? So he allows them to go first. And, and if we note here, so if you look through the text, it's at the heat of the day, it's the peak time to offer a sacrifice, okay? So they're there, there on Mount Carmel and Elijah says, choose you a bull, okay? Look at verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. Now, I just want us to note something subtle here. So it's this, this word name, the Hebrew word Shem. They called upon the name of Baal. What does that even mean? The name of Baal. He doesn't have anything. There's no character to Baal. There's nothing to know about Baal. And in Jewish culture and, and Hebrew scriptures, the name of something is the, the person themselves. It's their ideology. We know in the kingdom, we're going to have the name of Christ written on our foreheads. The, prof, the priest, the high priest, the name of Yahweh written on their foreheads. And here they're calling upon the name of Baal. 
Now contrast that with verse 32. Who does Elijah call out to? What name does Yah does, does sorry does Elijah mention? It says that he called out to the name of Yahweh. I will be whom I will be. And think of the contrast between the two names of these two gods. Baal, whose ideology, whose philosophy means absolutely nothing, or the name of Yahweh that's going to be imprinted in the glorified ones in the kingdom. The name of Yahweh that was imprinted into the mind of the Lord Jesus Christ. The name of Yahweh that wants to bear its name upon a group of people that they may show great and powerful glory. Which name do you think is going to respond? The true and living God? Or the God of death and nothingness? It's an obvious name to call out to, isn't it? And if we think here now, as Elijah is soon to call upon the name of Yahweh, a great fire is brought down from heaven. Divine fire consume the offering. Who was the first man who heard the revelation of the name of Yahweh? Well, of course, it was Moses. And how did Yahweh choose to reveal his name? He chose to reveal it in fire. And the power and the manifestation and the judgment powers of God speak of this consuming fire. And how appropriate that Elijah said, let us make a contest of fire, knowing full well that the God of the Hebrews, the God of Israel was the God who answers in fire. And here he is now, soon to announce that statement on the stage of Carmel. And if we look at verse 26, we've got to poke a little fun at the Baal worshippers. Just a little bit of fun. Because if you look at verse 26, I love this phrase, right? When the Baal worshippers called out, there was no voice, no one paid any attention, and no one answered. Right. Why on earth, in verse 26, would it say no one answered? Because no one was there. <laughs> no one was listening. The God of Baal didn't exist. There was, there was no answer. If my phone rings, I answer it. Right. If I'm not there, I don't answer. No one was listening to the call of Baal because no one answered because nobody was there. And yet we're told that our God allows the angels to encamp around those who fear him. And so we see the foolishness of this system, the foolishness of, of the ideology of man brought out here. But yet we laugh at Israel for not making a decision. But think about us, it's the same decision. It's the same obvious answer. It's the same ludicrous scenario. And yet time is against us. It's moving forward. Now, if we think here, note the phrase, so no voice answered. 
We know that through the Psalms, it tells us consistently that the Psalmist hears the voice of God. Now, who in the Bible was the first person to hear the voice of God? Well, it's Adam, isn't it? Okay, Adam was the first person. So it tells us in, in Genesis 3 verse 8, Adam heard the voice of God. And it's the same word used there in verse 26 that nobody was answering the voice of Baal. And now we've got Adam years before hearing the voice of God, the first person. And what did that voice say to, to Adam? When the voice chose to speak to Adam, how did Yahweh speak to him? Listen to these words. Because you have hearkened to the voice of your wife, you shall be cursed. The voice of God revealed himself to Adam. And the voice came as a voice of rebuke, saying to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, this land is cursed. And now in Carmel, we have a great cursing upon the land of Israel, just as it was in the times of the Garden of Eden. And if Adam had failed because he listened to the voice of his wife, how had Ahab failed? Well, I think he was just like Adam. The voice of God was going to call out to Israel because it was Ahab who hearkened to the voice of his wife. And so when that voice chose to appear itself to Adam, as he rebuked him to listening to Eve, so the voice of God is going to reveal itself through Elijah as he condemns Ahab for listening to Jezebel. Adam failed as Ahab failed. But what is the great blessing? Well, we know, don't we, that when, when Adam failed in the Garden of Eden, that they were clothed in a sacrifice. And now an offering is to be made as a sacrifice. And the choice is made with us. Are we going to listen to the voice of that Jezebel system, the voice of man, the voice of the world? Or are we going to read our scriptures and listen to the voice of God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if we don't listen to that and we listen to Jezebel, a great curse will be brought upon us where we shall return and end in dust. It's a harrowing and quite, quite profound statement that God's making. But he's trying to tell us and alleviate the pressure from us that the choice to be made is simple. It's easy. Choose life. Look at uh, verse 27. And the Baal worshippers continued for six to nine hours chanting and Elijah mocked them. OK, so here he is mocking these Baal worshippers. Now, what's interesting is that word mocking is used elsewhere in the Bible. And it's tragically used in the story of Samson. And we remember, don't we, it was Delilah who mocked Samson and his God. But now the tables have turned. It's no longer the woman mocking the man. It's Elijah now mocking Jezebel 
in defiance of her God. And he's doing so as he rebukes them and mocks them. And he says to them in verse 27. So Elijah said, cry aloud for he is God or he is a God. Maybe he's talking. Now, the word, <laughs> I got to laugh. I'll be honest with you. He would have said it with such passion and power. But but what he says here, your God is talking. Essentially, if you look at the Hebrew, it means he's deep in thought. You know, he's he's philosophizing. You know, well, maybe your God's not answering, he says, because um, maybe he's, he's, he's having a little think. He's thinking about something. He's deep in thought. Keep keep going. Keep going. And they, 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 they keep, keep going, don't they? They keep going and they, they continue and continue. And he says, no, he's deep in thought. Wait till he stops thinking, but just keep talking to him. Maybe maybe he'll, like, he'll answer then. And then he says... Um, or he is pursuing. Now, you'll have a different translation if you're reading a different version, but essentially what he's saying there is that Baal was, well, he was relieving himself. Most ungodlike characteristics. So there he goes. Oh, maybe he's deep in thought. Let's keep continuing, keep going. Uh, um, and then he says, well, maybe, maybe he's relieving himself a little bit. Maybe he's doing that. And then he continues. Maybe, he says, um, he's on a journey. And the, the, the idea of going on a journey means he's gone traveling. You know, he's at, maybe he's having a gap year, he says to the Baal worshippers. He's not around. But let's keep talking. Maybe, maybe he will hear you. So he's on a deep in thought. He, he's relieving himself. And, um, well, he's just gone traveling. And then he says, well, if that's not the case, maybe he sleeps and must be awakened. Now, the ideology of, um, of Baal worship, it was seasonal. They, they believed that Baal slept in the winter, okay, and was awake in the summer. So he hibernates in the winter. We're in a three and a half year drought at the hottest day, hottest time of the day, at peak summer. And he says, well, maybe he's in hibernation period. That's an awful long sleep for Baal worshippers, isn't it? Three and a half years at peak day at the time of the hottest uh, summer sky. But Elijah says, well, maybe he's, um, he's having a little sleep. But what does Yahweh say to us, friends? What does he say, say in Psalm 121 and verse 4? He that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber or sleep. That's the God of us. His watchful eye continually, as he works with the nations, as he moves certain chess pieces into particular positions, so that one time in the near future, he'll land his final chess move, and it might just be the position of the king. The time of the king has arrived. And at that point, the God who neither slumbers nor sleeps will be checkmate. And yet here, the laughable situation of those who do not choose the true God. And look at verse 27. Elijah cried aloud and they reciprocate in verse 28. They cried aloud. So it's almost as though everything Elijah said, they did in response. They, they were motivated into this frenzy by Elijah's jarring comments. And then in verse 28, the extent of the manic 
they cut themselves and blood poured. And this is Ahab's finest. This is who Ahab had to offer on the table. They cut themselves. They're willing to pour their own blood to prove that Yahweh was false. And the point is that the world of Jezebel will do all that it can in its own manly strength, in its own manly might. It will do all that it can to show that Yahweh is wrong. And they're even willing to pour their soul into it. And yet God says, Baal never answers. Verse 13. Elijah had had his fun. He'd witnessed this great tragic moment. As those prophets of Baal jump upon the altars, hopping between two opinions were Israel. As the blood poured on that altar, as they are whipped into this frenzy. And then it stops. And the people are looking at Elijah and he steps up before them and he says, come near unto me. You know, who says those words? Come to me. Well, it's the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come unto me who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. And I dare say that those witnessing this episode were weary and burdened watching this lunacy happen for six to nine hours. And then Elijah stands before them and says, come to me, come to me. And all the people come to him. And then it says he repaired an altar. The altar had been thrown down. It'd been broken. And then Elijah repaired it. The idea to repair is the image of one who heals and if we think of Israel, what state were they in? Well, they were like Mephibosheth. They were paralyzed. They were crippled. And now Elijah, the great healer, as the Lord Jesus Christ will do, soon do, he's going to heal that nation. He's going to heal that people. And like he will with us, brothers and sisters and friends, because at times we are paralyzed, not in body, but we are paralyzed in the mind. And it's the job of the great healer to heal us that will be agile, that will be malleable, that will be understanding the word of God as immortal beings, as he will wipe off this dusty frame and imprint into us the image of God. That's the role of the great healer. And look in verse 15. Elijah now is about to now address a great prayer to heaven. And what God does in answering this call, he brings down the great fire from heaven. So Elijah mocks the people of Israel. He mocks the prophets of Baal. And then the great fire from heaven bursts forth in a blazing fire, scorching the sacrifice and licking up the water and consuming it entirely. And in this incident, we see the soon revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ as he'll come as that lightning bolt. You know, when we come to the book of Revelation, at the end of times, it tells us that the whole world, all nations will come to worship the image of the beast. 
And here we've got almost all Israel come to worship the image of Baal. Zechariah 12 verse 3 says at this point there will be a gathering of nations. And in 1 Kings 18 verse 20 it tells us all the nations gathered together. Zechariah 14 says that on this day of the day of the kingdom there will be a unique it will be a unique day a day in which there shall be a light seen in the evening time and if you look at verse 36 God's fury was unleashed in the evening it tells us in Revelation 19, verse 12, that when the Lord Jesus Christ reveals himself to the world and the world stage, in verse 12, his eyes are like the flame of fire. In Revelation 13, verse 13, fire will come down from heaven in the sight of all men. Revelation 16, verse 18, there will be flashes of lightning. Ezekiel 38, verse 19, there'll be a blazing wrath of God. Zechariah 12, verse 6, this day will be a blazing pot in the midst of wood and a flaming torch among the sheaves. Zechariah 9, verse 4, she shall be devoured by fire. Revelation 19, verse 15, in his mouth will be a sharp sword. And in Ezekiel 38, and verse 23, God will make himself known and they shall know who Yahweh is. And when the fire came down from heaven, when the light was seen in the times of the evening, who stood as a silhouette amongst the great fire of God? It was a man called Elijah, a man whose name means Yahweh is God. And Ezekiel 38 verse 23, that at that moment in the future, when God reveals himself through the fire of his son, all the world shall know who Yahweh is. You know, finally, 1 Kings 18, verse 23, it tells us, at 1 Kings 18, verse 40, sorry, it tells us that the prophets of Baal, once this had happened, were seized and slaughtered in the brook Kishon. And all of them, all of Israel, called out, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. And the name Yahweh is God is the name Elijah, calling out Elijah, Elijah, Elijah. And then they take the prophets of Baal, seize them and slay them in the brook Kishon. You know, the brook Kishon is used in Judges 5 and verse 19. It tells us that Kishon is known as the waters of Megiddo. And so Elijah takes the prophets of Baal and slays them at the waters of Megiddo. Do you know what the Greek word for Megiddo is? It's the Greek word Armageddon. And in this little cameo of 1 Kings 18, we have a figure of Armageddon where the prophets of Jezebel shall be slain and the fire of God will come down. And then the glory of the saints shall spread the word of God across all the earth. You see, it tells us finally in Hebrews chapter one and verse 11 of the glories of Jezreel. Mount Carmel overlooked this valley. And as Elijah looked out from the heights of Carmel onto the Jezreel Valley, 
he saw nothing but a desert. But with the rain cloud coming, that desert will be turned into a fruitful garden. A, a, a landscape that will show the beauty of creation. And in Hosea 1 and verse 11, it picks up upon the glory that when the saints pour God's word upon the earth, it shall be like the valley of Jezreel. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint themselves one head. And they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. The great day when the rain cloud pours and the fire of God has accomplished his work, where the kingdom of God is established. But in the meantime, young people, and this is directed to you, how long do you halt between two opinions? Thank you. doesn't love the prophet Elijah. He is one of the most celebrated uh, Bible characters or Bible people that we have, certainly in the Old Testament. And he came, didn't he? He came in one blazing fire and left in one blustery whirlwind. And it needed, didn't it? It needed the vehemence of someone like Elijah to tackle what was happening in Israel during this, this troubling time. Because, of course, the two people in control of Samaria were Ahab, the coward, and his evil wife, Jezebel. I mean, even the name Jezebel, I mean, it sends a shiver down your spine, doesn't it? Jezebel. They were two horrors who plagued Israel with, with false doctrine, with immorality, and took people away from the true and living God, which was Yahweh, who, who gave his name to their forefathers, Abraham. And it needed someone like Elijah, as Jezebel had blackened the clouds and blackened the place of Israel with misery, uh, with bloodshed and with false worship. And Elijah now, as we opened up in our reading, comes straight upon the scene, a Tishbite with a name meaning Yahweh is God. And it needed somebody with that name to show Israel how far they'd gone from the true and living God. The thing is, friends, uh, brothers and sisters of young people, that Although the people of Israel had started to forget who God really was, we're going to find out there was a remnant. And there was a remnant in Israel who truly still believed and were opposed to the teachings and the dogma of what Jezebel and, that, and the coward Ahab had produced within Israel. And what we're going to see is we're going to see a parallel between the life of Elijah and the life of the early Ecclesia. Because believe it or not, when we come to the book of Revelation, it's going to tease out some of the elements that we're going to read in 1 Kings chapter 17. It's absolutely fabulous. It's genius. Of course, it is. it's the word of God. It's divine. How Revelation picks up upon this wonderful story. Okay. First of all, the system in place during the times of Jezebel and Elijah was Baal. Baal was the god of the heavens, the earth and the sky, the God of rain, earth and fire. Now, during the times of the harlot in Revelation 17, 
it's going to adapt itself into another false uh, teaching, okay? So if you've got your Bibles handy with you, if you, if you just look in Revelation 20, sorry, Le Revelation 2 and verse 20, we, we know in the New Testament that the early apostles warned the ecclesia of uh, a corruption that would come in, that there would be people who would be speaking things that weren't what God and certainly the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry were teaching Israel. And the, the early apostle had put all this energy, all this effort into teaching the early ecclesias. But in the writings of Paul, he warns time and time again of this apostate system that's going to come out, okay? And Revelation 2, we've got a metaphor for this apostate system, for this false teaching. And believe it or not, friends, the metaphor that's used in Revelation chapter 2 is the name Jezebel. So if we look at verse 20, it says, this group of people that abide, if you notice there, the teaching or suffer the teachings of Jezebel. Now, during this time, of course, in the early apostles, the system in place was a Roman system. And Jezebel here in, in Revelation 2 and verse 20 is going to come out of this Roman system. OK, she's Roman and she's a part of that Roman dogma, that Roman teaching. And God uses the same name that's used in 1 Kings chapter 17 of the evil prince, princess, the evil queen, Jezebel. So what the Bible is telling us, is telling us to link these two together. They are direct linked. So what we see in 1 Kings 17 is Jezebel. We're going to see now in Revelation the fulfillment of that evil work Jezebel did. It's no longer a person. It's no longer an individual, a queen. Now this person becomes a, a system of teaching brought about by Rome. Now, if we go to Revelation chapter 11... OK, so if you turn uh, your Bibles to, to Revelation 11, we're going to see here the beginning of this Jezebel system. Uh, we call it, don't we, the harlot system that, that's spoken of later in Revelation. But in Revelation 11, we've got the beginning, the origin of it. And if you look in verse three, we've got a group of people who are known as the witnesses. And the witnesses were a faithful group of people who opposed the teachings of Jezebel or the teaching of this Roman system. Uh, the, the witnesses here in Revelation chapter 11 tried desperately to keep and maintain the truth that was taught in the early, in the early ecclesias by the apostles. And if you look at verse three, these two witnesses, because of their faith, because of their opposition to this Jezebel system, God says that he will give power unto them that they shall prophesy 1,260 days and they'll do it clothed in sackcloth. So for 1,260 days, these faithful group of people who are trying to maintain the truth, who oppose the Jezebel harlot, that Roman teaching, have been given the opportunity to prophesy for 1,260 days. It's very complicated at the moment, isn't it? But if we look at verse 6, notice that God gives these group, this group a special power. Because of their faithfulness, it says these have the power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy. So for 1,260 days, this group of people faithfully opposing this Jezebel system, this system that's bringing corruption into the early ecclesia, 
they have been given the power to shut the heavens. The heavens now are going to close down. Now, when we read that phrase, the shutting of heavens, we'll find this out later. It essentially means that there's going to be judgment poured upon this, this system that comes from Rome. And because of their faith, because of their maintaining effort to keep the truth, they had this power to close the heavens because they had a blessing from God. Yet the Roman system had a curse from God. Now, what does it mean, this 1,260 days? It doesn't leave a lot of time, does it? You know, 1,260 days. Well, in the book of Revelation, of course, we're going to have to use symbolic language. And there's a real nifty uh, principle that's used throughout the, the Bible, which is a day for a year principle. So we're not going to say 1,260 days. We're going to use the idea that they had the power of prophecy to shut the heavens on Rome for 1,260 years. And this will start to make a lot more sense. So I'm going to put something on the screen for you. Okay. Now, during this 1,260-year period, when we begin at around AD 300, so this Roman teaching, okay, started at around AD 300, when the church or the early ecclesia began to become corrupted by this system. We're going to add 1,260 years to that, to the late 16th century. Now, during this time period, when we use the reference, the closing down of heavens, Rome was severely cursed. I mean, you don't have to look in your history books to find out what happened during this, this time period. They were, they were plagued. Uh, there, were, there were internal divisions. There were schisms. There were civil wars. There were famines. There were massacres. Rome severely suffered through this 1,260-year period. Okay? That's really important. And God says, well, this is going to be described as a famine where the heavens have closed on Rome. Now, now, what about these witnesses? What happened to them during this time of torment that was poured upon Rome? Well, we only have to turn to Revelation chapter 13, uh, 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 sorry, Revelation chapter 12, and we look at verse 6, and a symbol of these witnesses is used, and all, what they did during this time, they simply fled. And it tells us that they fled to the wilderness. And that's exactly what history tells us. That early ecclesia that kept its, kept trying to keep this true meaning, the true meaning of the early apostles, they fled and they, they fled to places in Africa. They fled across the different four quarters uh, of, of Europe, but, but they fled away and hid themselves from the system of Rome. And they were severely persecuted because of this. There were huge killings and murders to those witness groups because of their um, opposition to what Rome was trying to teach during the time. Now, 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 what's pretty interesting about this, that within this group of witnesses, so let's just imagine now we've got entire, uh, a, big, a big population of Rome, huge population of Rome. Within that populace, we've got a group of people called the witnesses who oppose the teachings of Rome. But within that popular population, within that community of witnesses, there became something known as the remnant, the ecclesial remnant. And it was the remnant friends, brothers and sisters and young people, who maintained what the truth was 
given by Christ to the early apostles. It was the ecclesial remnant who became the truth bearers. And so if we just boil it all down, we've got this whole system of Rome with corruption, with false teaching. And then we've got another group of people who oppose that teaching. But within that group, there are those who would not take up the sword. There were those who truly believe faithfully what the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished. And the point is, not long after this, there was a huge ecclesial reformation in which we became a part of. So the Christadelphian community, with all of its heritage, will have all of its understanding on the doctrines and, and the works of the Lord Jesus Christ, came from that ecclesial remnant. And so when we look at the screen and we see that group of people, that's us. And we go right back, right the way back to Rome and that witness group who opposed the system. And within that witness group became the ecclesial remnant. And not long after, in the, in the, in the, in the late 19th century, we had a brother called John Thomas who, who found who found out what truth was, and we became part then. We aligned ourselves to that ecclesial remnant. And so the ecclesial remnant is tiny. It's absolutely tiny compared to the full system of Rome. Fleeing to the wilderness, they did. Now, this allegory that we've just seen, this, well, this not allegory, well, this, this historical record is played out in the life of Elijah. And when we look at the life of Elijah, we're going to see the allegory, the story of what we've just discussed. So if we just look now at 1 Kings 17 and verse 1, and let's just pick out the language in which Yahweh speaks to Elijah. So if you look at verse 1 of 1 Kings 17, Elijah now bursts upon the scene. He's furious as what's going on in Israel. And he looks eye to eye with Ahab. And he says, as the Lord God liveth, as Yahweh God liveth, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years, but according to my work. Now, if you look at that carefully, if you see this phrase, there shall be no dew or rain, essentially, we've got another shutting up of heaven. Elijah now is going to unleash a curse upon the Jezebel system of Israel, like what happened in Revelation chapter 11, when those faithful witnesses, through their prophesying and through their understanding of God, allowed God to close the heavens on Rome. And if you were to turn to James chapter 5, and you looked at verse 17, the epistle of James gives us a little bit more information as to what happened. It tells us that Elijah prayed earnestly that it might not rain for three and a half months and so for three and a half months there was drought upon Israel because of the tyranny of Jezebel now three and a half months if you were to look at a Jewish calendar because they work on a lunar calendar there's 30 days in a in a month in the Jewish calendar right so three and a half months believe it or not gives us one thousand 260 days. 
And so we can see in the life of Elijah, we had 1,260 days where the, 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 the heavens were closed down through the prayer of Elijah is played out in the book of Revelation, where we have a group of witnesses who oppose Jezebel or oppose that Roman system that for 1,260 years, the heavens were closed and, and Rome was, of course, plagued. OK, now, if we were to go on, OK, and, and we were to look at James chapter five and verse 17, we'll notice, right, that he says that Elijah prayed earnestly. OK, so he prays earnestly for this judgment to be poured upon um, Israel. But if we were to look at 1 Kings 17 and verse one, where did Elijah go next? Well, remember in Revelation 12, we saw that the witness camp, the group of people who opposed Rome, it tells us that they fled to the wilderness during that time period of 1,260 years. So do we see this play out in the life of Elijah? Well, of course we do. Because if you look at uh, 1 Kings 17 and verse 3, Elijah also flees. And he flees for the time period of three and a half months, three and a half years, sorry. Okay, I might have said months earlier, sorry, it's three and a half years. Okay, so three and a half years is 1,260 days. Okay, in case I said that. So Elijah then flees for 1,260 days where Jezebel was judged by God and the heavens were closed. Now, here's a question. During the time in which that faithful group of witnesses fled from Rome for 1,260 years and, and there was a, a faithful group of people that was called the, the remnant came into existence, what does Elijah come across or who does Elijah come across in the 1,260 day period of the judgments of Israel? Well, he comes across a widow and her son who were Gentiles, who were converted to the truth. And so just in Revelation, when we see after 1,260 years, a faithful remnant come out of those witness groups. So in the life of Elijah, after 1,260 days, or during that 1,260 days, he comes across a remnant, a group of people, certainly with the widow and a son, who want to understand what the truth of God was all about. So remember, Elijah in James 5, it tells us that he prayed. He prayed earnestly for this to happen, for this moment, for a time period in which Jezebel was judged. And it tells us in James 5 that he prayed earnestly. Now, if you were to look at the, the Greek word earnestly, there's a preposition before it, a connective word, and, and it's the, the Greek word pros, okay? Pros. And basically pros in the English means in regards to something. So, so Elijah in James 5, is he's praying in regards to something. Now, we've got to ask the question, what on earth was Elijah praying on regards to? Now, what caused him to think to pray for this judgment to be poured out on Israel? Well, We've got it in our readings today, believe it or not. Deuteronomy 28, where it talks about the cursings of Israel. And Deuteronomy 28 tells us that if Israel were to worship false idols like Baal, then God would shut the heavens on Israel. Let me read these words to you 
It's Deuteronomy 11, verse 17. If it says there, if you go and worship false idols, the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heaven that there be no rain and that the lands yield not a fruit. And so Elijah is thinking desperately about the law of Moses in Deuteronomy. And he knows full well that if there's a system in place that he needs to pray for judgments to be poured upon that system, not just for mass killing. God's not interested in that. What God's interested in is to give a time period where people can repent. And so a judgment was placed upon this system that Jezebel in, in the times of Israel for a time period for Israel to repent from the judgments that was poured down from God. And so Elijah here now, he's praying for this to happen. He wants Israel back in the fold. He wants them to understand what the true water of God's word is. And so in doing so, God takes away the rains. Now, what's really interesting is that when Elijah prays, as he's praying for this to happen, what do you think those group of witnesses were doing during this Roman system? Well, may I make a suggestion that they were doing exactly the same? It tells us in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, that those faithful witnesses call out with a loud voice, O Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so that group of witnesses that we've read of in Revelation chapter 11 could see what was happening in the early ecclesias, and they prayed because they were being persecuted by the Romans. They were being killed because of their faith and they call out in one awesome prayer to God in heaven for God to listen to them and pour some kind of judgment upon Rome that they may understand where they've gone wrong. And Elijah was persecuted for what he believed. He was public enemy number one. Death, threat, death threats were sent to Elijah that caused him to run to Horeb. And so, like we've seen with Elijah, so we've seen here with this group of witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. And the thing is, as well, I think it's really important to notice this, that um, Jezebel is highly connected to the drought. She's the one, right, who's causing it. Her teaching had, um, had dehydrated the, na the nation of its spiritual quality. They were thirsty for God's word. And now Jezebel takes away the water of God away from them. And so what does God do? Well, he says, if that's how you want to behave, I'm going to literally take away the waters from you. So God uses the natural to teach the spiritual. And he always does this. He always gives the natural to then teach the spiritual. Now, in today's reading, it actually says in verse 24 that if Israel were to fall away from God's teaching, he would turn their rain to dust. OK, lovely symbolic language there, isn't it? That their rain would turn to dust. And if we think about it, that's the destiny of man. If he doesn't have the water of God's word, if he's not quenching his soul with the fountain of life, then his destiny is going to go back to the dust. We need that water to sustain our souls. And you know what? This was the destiny, or not was, this is going to be the destiny of Rome. Because if we look at Revelation 18 and verses 18 to 19, 
that in the future when Armageddon happens, it says when they saw the smoke of her burning, notice the word her, it's Jezebel. They will say, what city is like this, the great city? And in their mourning, because Babylon will fall, because Rome shall collapse, they shall cast dust upon their heads. So today's reading says, if you fall away from God, if you walk away from his teaching, rain, the rain will turn to dust. And here, right, in one kings, there's no rain on the earth. It's just a land of dust. And in the book of Revelation, there's going to be no rain, spiritual drought. And God says their destiny is to be as the dust. It's really powerful language. And it's quite eerie and quite awesome when you look at it, the way God uses this theme. Because there's one thing, the, the biggest enemy of Yahweh, the biggest enemy of God, is this system, is this Roman Jezebel system. And their destiny is to go back to where they began, into the dust. Okay, right. So, group of witnesses flee. There's a remnant that, that, that's produced from that, that group or that, that are born into that, that camp. And now Elijah, he flees as well. So if we look at the screen here, okay, so we've got the, the 1,260 years of, of, of the Revelation theme, and we're going to align that then with the 1,260 days of the Elijah theme. And what happened, of course? Well, we see in the, in the top bar, 1,260 years political drought upon the nation of Rome that brought a reformation of the true ecclesia. And in the times of Elijah, a physical, literal drought that eventually brought a reformation of those who wanted to worship who Yahweh was. And who were they? Who did Elijah meet during this time? Who was that community? Well, it's going to be the widow and her son. So if you just look now in 1 Kings 17 and you look at verse 9, you'll notice there that Elijah comes to the place of Zidon. Okay, Believe it or not, this is the same territory in which Jezebel grew up. And he goes right there to Zidon. And Zidon, okay, just look in a lexicon. It's amazing what it means. It means fishing. And what were the words the Lord Jesus Christ said to his disciples? He says the words, I want you to become fishes of men. And so what we're seeing here in this little community of Zidon, as Elijah now walks towards a home in which he's going to see a widow and her son, He's seeing now a call to the gospel, a call to the hope of Israel. And Elijah, of course, is a Jew and he's going then to a Gentile. And we've got Jew and Gentile together, an image there, OK, of the future hope of Israel. Uh, and what do we have here? Well, we've got this this widow, of course, and they can barely um, they can barely make a meal because, of course, there's a huge drought. And we've got her son who, of course, becomes really ill. And what happens if you just read through the text? It's all about food. And they're in a drought. And what we see in this little scenario, this wonderful little story of the account of Elijah, is that even in a spiritual drought, God will always sustain. And we are part of that small community that small faithful community who hide themselves from the Roman tyranny. And we, friends, are in a spiritual drought, just as the widow and her son were in a physical drought. 
And yet in this spiritual drought, as the whole world refuses to acknowledge who Christ is, if we have faith and call ourselves part of the hope of Israel, as this widow did, we will be sustained by the word of God. And what's being used here? If you notice down, we've got bread. And bread, of course, represents the word of God. And also we've got water, which represents the word of God. And that faithful woman in that little remnant was sustained in a 1,260-day period by the bread and the water of heaven. They were sustained by the word of God. And who were they? Well, we've got, of course, we've got the widow and her son. But if we think about, for example, uh, the law of Moses, one of the key phrases that appears all the way through the law is to look after the fatherless, okay, the widow and the stranger. And even the Lord Jesus Christ picks up upon this phrase that we need to be listening and adhering to the, the widow, the fatherless and the stranger. Now, if we think about these two people here, these two Gentiles, well, of course, the woman was a widow. They were both strangers because they were Gentiles. And the young boy was fatherless. So here we have, as Elijah meets these, this, little, this little household, we've got the widow, the fatherless, and the stranger. Well, well, let's think about us. Who are we? This remnant, the Christadelphians, who are we? Well, we were once widowed because in baptism, we put away Adam. But now we've found a new husband, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. We were once strangers, but now we're adopted into the household of Israel. And we were once fatherless, but now we have Yahweh who looks after us. So the widow, the fatherless and the stranger embodied in these two individuals in the town of Zidon, they're us. Elijah meets us figuratively. And who are these two people speaking to? They're speaking to a man whose name means Yahweh is God. And as a faithful remnant, brothers and sisters and friends, we have access to Yahweh is God. We can converse with him as he sustains us, as we were once widowed, as we were once strangers, as we were once fatherless. Now we can have fellowship with Yahweh himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is this little family doing together? They're having a fellowship meal. That's what the remnant do. They faithfully break bread together. They faithfully pray together and they are faithfully sustained by the word of God. But but it wasn't just this two these two people, was it? We've got two other accounts of a remnant in the times of Elijah. We have 7000 people, God tells him, who refuse to bow their knee to Baal. And if you look at 1 Kings 18 and verse 4, We've got another faithful remnant who are hiding in caves. And what were the remnant doing or what were the witnesses doing in Revelation? They, they hid. They fled. What's Elijah doing? He flees. What's this woman doing now? She's, she's in a home away from the Jezebel system. And together, the faithful men in a cave, the 7,000 people who refused to bow down their knee to Baal, Elijah himself and this widow and her son now 
keep the truth together in spite of the plague upon Israel and in spite of what Jezebel was doing. It's a wonderful example of what we do as a community. The Roman system for our teaching will hate us. And we are now in a spiritual drought. And yet for 150 years, in, in, in the case of the Christadelphians, we've been that faithful community of people together who share fellowship and who speak to Yahweh is God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But of course, one of the great hopes of this community and the community who was living in the times of Elijah was the second advent. And in 1 Kings 17, we have the second advent of Elijah. And we are waiting for the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's have a look at it, shall we? Let's have a look at 1 Kings 18 and verse 1. In the third year, the Lord said, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. That phrase there, go show yourself to Ahab. This was the moment now Elijah had been waiting for. He wanted to go back to Israel. And God says to him, go back and send the rain. And there's going to be a moment, brethren, sisters, friends, young people, in the not too distant future where God will have a similar conversation with his son. And he's going to look at his son who sits on the right hand of him. And he's going to say, go back and send the rains. And this was the moment now Elijah returns. And the point is that the revealing of Elijah to Israel was bound up in the rain. If there was no Elijah, there was no rain. And so when Elijah returns, so does the rain. Now, if we think about it, what does rain um, represent in the Bible? Clearly, we've got a wonderful spiritual message here. Now, we only have to go to Hebrews chapter 12, and we find out that the phrase witnesses is used, or the word witnesses. And we know that word quite well, don't we? The witnesses. We're part of that group. Sadly, we're now just a remnant of that group. But it tells us in, in Hebrews 12 and verse 1, that the group of faithful witnesses who abide by the principles of truth, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ fully by his teaching, who oppose a system that denounces Christ in all of his glory, that group of people are known as the cloud of witnesses. And so when God says to Elijah, bring back the reins, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to bring the rains upon the earth in the future. And the rain cloud, brothers and sisters and friends, that we read in 1 Kings 18 is symbolic of the revealing of the saints. Because we are told that we are going to come to this earth as a rain cloud. I mean, in Matthew 24 and verse 30, when the Lord Jesus Christ talks about the revealing of the Son of Man, he says, in the latter times, you shall see the Son of Man appearing in a great cloud, he says. And who's the rain cloud? Well, it's the saints. It's the multitudinous bride. And so Ahab now, figuratively speaking here, of course, figuratively speaking, he brings with him the multitudinous bride who's going to rain God's judgments and blessings on a parched earth. 
And so like it happened literally here in all of its nature in, in one Kings, so it's going to happen spiritually in the future. And that faithful group of people who we're a part of are going to be part of that rain cloud who's going to quench this dry earth. Now, if you look at verse 44, what happens in the story of Elijah? Well, if you look at 1 Kings 18, verse 44, believe it or not, there we have it. A little cloud is seen like a man's hand rising from the sea. And in this image here, in 1 Kings 18, verse 44, we have just a cameo, just a glimpse, just a snapshot of the future work of the saints. A rain cloud rising up to bring judgment and blessings upon this earth. But I want us to note something. It tells us that the cloud was in a shape of a man's hand. Now, why would it be shaped in this way? Well, when the Lord Jesus Christ in, in Matthew 26 and verse 64 talks about the revealing of himself on a great cloud, he says these words, you shall see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And so the hand here in 1 Kings 18 speaks of the, 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 the divine power of Yahweh himself and spearheading this attack is the Lord Jesus Christ. And surrounding him is this cloud of witnesses, the faithful saints come now to quench this earth. Now, if you think about a hand, right, here's my hand, right? We've got five digits. What could that word or that number five mean? Well, the book of Ephesians gives us the categories of the future saints. It tells us all the different groups of people who are going to be part of that multitudinous bride. Those who work in the truth, who have a, a future hope, that witness group who hold fast to the true teachings of Christ. And this is what Ephesians 4 categorizes them as. If you look at verse 11, we've got the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers. Five categories of people on the hand of God as a cloud with the Lord Jesus Christ at the helm. And what are they going to do? What are the saints going to do as this great cloud? Well, Deuteronomy 32 tells us, and it tells us that God's doctrine, God's word is like the rain that falls from the sky. And so the role of the saints will bring judgment upon Rome. Torrential hoarding rains will fall upon Rome. But also with it comes a blessing, a blessing of life, a blessing of God's word. And so the future role of our, our work, the hope that we have is that we're going to be part of that rain cloud that pours the water of God's word on this spiritually parched world. And in it, there will be judgment, but in it, there will be life. And that's the hope that we have through what was given here to the work of Elijah. Um, isn't it interesting? So if you look down and 1 Kings 18, have a guess how many times the word water is used. It's used seven times, right? 
And the word seven or the number seven is related to God's covenant. God's covenant is going to be poured upon this earth that it may bring forth truth again. And what's so sad about it is that we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the life of living waters. He's the only one who can do that. And yet the worship of Baal was ordained based upon the fact that they saw him or claimed him to be the God of waters. And the Roman Catholic Church, in very similar ways, claims to be the church of the living waters. But they're not. Only the Lord Jesus Christ and that remnant who hold true to him, given by the early apostles, have access to that water. Without the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's drought. And yet here they are. Oh, Baal, hear us. Pull down the fire from heaven. Here they are in spiritual drought, claiming that Baal was the God of the waters. And here we have Rome, years and years later, who claim to be the church of the living waters. And yet they're in spiritual drought. Only the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his truth can bring true waters. Now, if we were to look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 20, the story continues ever so slightly. So if you look, if you turn your Bibles there to Revelation chapter 2, I think to understand Elijah in, in, in all of its beauty, we have to understand the enemy of its, his time. God spends a lot of time talking about Jezebel and not just in one Kings. And the beauty of having this recorded is if, um, if there's things that you need to go back on, of course, you can pause the video and rewind it. So, so we can do that. But if you look at Revelation 2 and verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have few things against thee. Speaking here to an ecclesia that's listening to the thoughts of Jezebel. Because thou sufferest the woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Notice that phrase. I gave Jezebel space to repent. And she did. She had three and a half years to repent. But she never did. And look what it says she's doing. She's causing people to commit fornication. The idea is there to be seduced by her thoughts. And when we look at Jezebel here in this early ecclesia here, so we see the beginnings of Jezebel here. Later on in the book of Revelation, we're going to see the manifestation of this harlot. And she comes into a vision to John like this. It's an image we've seen quite often, isn't it? The woman on the beast. The harlot here is the idea of Jezebel and she's on the beast now. So if you look at Revelation uh, chapter 17 and verse five, notice again, she's the mother of harlots and, and notice what she's doing. She's decked with scarlet colors. She's decked with golds and, and she's got precious stones and pearls and she's adorning herself with all of this, this glory to make herself look beautiful. And, and did we know that in one Kings, right? So in one King, or sorry, two Kings nine and verse 30, Jezebel was dressed in the same way. Okay. She dressed herself just like this. And so the text is inviting us to consider this system in relation to the 
to, 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 to Jezebel. The Babylonian harlot that we see here is directly linked to Jezebel. Now, what is the religion? So modern Christianity today, what is the teaching? Well, they teach a dogma of the Trinity, don't they? The Trinitarian God of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and, and it's really interesting that Baal too was a Trinitarian God. That he was the God of the heavens, he was the God of the skies, and he was the God of the waters, and embodied in him were three other parts. He was a Trinitarian God. Just like what modern Catholic, Catholic teaching teaches today. Notice as well, where's Baal stood? If you notice on the screen there, he stood, I've circled it at the bottom, he stood on the waters, isn't he? And then when we come to Revelation chapter 17 and we see the manifestation of the Baal teaching harlot, Catholic teaching harlot, where she stood upon, well, you'll see that she's also stood upon the waters. And so God is giving us these symbols to acknowledge the direct relationship that we are now still living under the, the authority of this Jezebel woman. She's the queen of the world, but we've got to keep true and be that widow and be her son. Be those 50 men in a cave, be the 7,000 people that refuse to bow their knee to Baal and be like Elijah. That's what the Bible's inviting us to do. In 1 Kings 18 verse 4, it tells us how ruthless and how horrific Jezebel was. So if you've got Bibles open still at 1 Kings 18, if you look there in verse 4, it tells us that her mission during this period of drought, during that 1,260 day period, she cut off the prophets of Yahweh. Now, if you were to look up that word cut off, it's a word that's used for sacrifice. Jezebel sacrificed the prophets of God as an offering for her God. She spilt innocent blood as a sacrifice to appease her false idols. And when we think about the history of Rome, Rome did the same thing. They slaughtered the people who opposed that system in bloodshed as a sacrifice almost to their false religion. How dare they say, how dare Yahweh be the God of us? They wanted to create a God in their own eyes, didn't they? And what we see here in 1 Kings 18 and verse 4 actually is the very first religious massacre and if this is the first religious massacre what do you think the last religious massacre is going to be well of course it's the system of Jezebel isn't it because if you notice in Revelation 17 verse 6 she retaliates in the same way as Jezebel did in the times of Israel and I saw the woman drunken with the blood of saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, she's only interesting in persecuting those who love the word of God, those who want to keep hold true to what the truth is, those who are part of that remnant community. That's her sole ambition, 
to slay those and to offer those to her false religion. And if you just flick over, this is, this is so eerie what she does. If you flick over to Revelation 18 and verse 13, what is she interested in here? Well, we've got a category of things that she likes to trade with. And if you look at verse 13, it tells us at the end of verse 13 of Revelation 18, that she trades the souls of men. That's her economy. That's how she does business. That's how she trades. She trades with the souls of men. And who do you think those men are? Who do you think those women are? It's, of course, a group of people who oppose her. And the thing is, friends and brothers and sisters and young people, just like in the times of Elijah, God is going to bring judgment upon this system. And why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he bring judgment upon this system? Look what they've done. Look what they did. If you look in 1 Kings 21, in your own time, verse 23 and 24, I mean, to be honest with you, I loved this story as a kid. I'm going to be honest with you. When we see the demise of Jezebel, what happened to her? Well, she was killed, of course, and then she was devoured by the scavengers. It's a horrible thing to happen to anybody, but that was what happened to Jezebel. And if you look in Revelation 17, verse 16, what is the conclusion to this system? Well, it tells us that she's devoured in the same way as the princess in the times of Israel. The end of Jezebel in Israel is the same conclusion as to what ha will happen to the Roman Jezebel in the book of Revelation and in the future. And, and the thing is, and I think this is really important, we no longer live into that 1,260 year period. That's been fulfilled. That was fulfilled in, in the late 16th century. But we live in another similar time period. Because like God brought judgments upon Israel, so God has brought judgments upon Rome. And we live under a time period now where we don't get slain down by the sword. We are not, hopefully not in the future, physically assaulted for our beliefs. Jezebel has a different mission. She's not interesting anymore in slaying you with the sword. Her ambition now is to slay you in the mind. That's what she wants to do. And if we've learned anything from 1 Kings 18, it's to be that remnant. If we've learned anything from Revelation chapter 11, it's to be that remnant because we have a decision. And a decision is, do we want to be part of the destruction of that system or do we want to be part of that rain cloud? That's the choice we have to make. It's an easy choice if you think about it. But it's a choice nonetheless. She wants to slay that mind. And we only have to look in the, uh, on the news and on, on the TV or on the Internet. And we just see the rise of humanism. We see the rise of equality all around us. And if we think about Babylon, they wanted to be equal. One voice. And God says this is just confusion. And if you look in the world today, how many people suffer from confusion? Anxiety now is one of the biggest problems in humanity. And it's all driven. Look at it. Look at the scientific research. It's all driven by confusion, where people question who they are, 
They question where they're from. It's only going to drive confusion because she wants to slay the mind. And if we think about the time period we're in now, we think about COVID-19, for example. Who's not to say that this could be part of a plague brought upon Rome because of the faithful prayers of the witnesses? And if you look on a map and you see how COVID-19 has hit the nations, it has decimated the West, particularly Catholic Europe. And so maybe it, during this time where we're isolated in our homes, just like the widow and her son were isolated in, that, in, that, in their home, just like those 50 men were hiding in a cave. So we have a community of brothers and sisters together as a remnant, hiding ourselves from that Roman tyranny as God pours judgments upon that system. And who is not to suggest that, that this could be part of a prayer given by a group of people that we may think and consider who the true God is, that we may be quenched once again by the water of his word. And so finally, in this first session, we need to be a little, more like, a little bit more like Elijah. Because if you look in 1 Kings 17, verse 1, you'll notice there that he's a Tishbite. And the word Tishbite essentially means somebody who likes to sojourn. Elijah is a stranger. He didn't want to be part of Israel because of what was going on. And likewise, the epistles pick out on the fact that we are strangers in this world. We are strangers to this system who wants to slay us. But notice as well that he's from Gilead. And you'll never have a guess what Gilead means. It means the hill of witness. And Elijah is typified as one of those people who was a witness against the tyranny of Jezebel. And that's where his roots lay. His roots lay in that witness group. And just like the witness group in Revelation 12 fled, so Elijah flees as well. You know, the people of Gad, or, or, or it tells us there that, that Elijah was from Gilead. Well, Gilead was the place of Gad. It was a, 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 in the territory of Gad. And, and so it could be down to the fact that Elijah was from Gad as well. And we've given an interesting synopsis on what the people from Gad were like. And I'm going to read these words to you. It tells us in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 8, that the Gadites hold themselves to the wilderness. They wanted to be away. And just as Jezebel was slain in the times of Israel, it was Elijah who fled himself to the wilderness. But notice as well what it says. It says that these men are fit for war. Their faces were the face of lions, and they were swift as the rose from the mountains. So Elijah, strongly potentially was from the tribe of Gad, we're told that those people were men of might, men of war, men who were fit for battle. 
And we only have to look at Ephesians chapter six. And there we have the armor of Christ telling us to battle against the darkness of this world. And notice as well, it tells us that those people had the face of a lion. So in our spiritual war, friends, during this great time of drought, as the plagues of God unleashes itself upon Rome, let us be part of that witness group. Let us be part of those faithful prayers who pray for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be sojourners and strangers. Let us heed to the hope of Israel. And in the meantime, let us handle shield and sword together and let us bear on our face the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the lion, the tribe of Judah. Thank you. Thank you.